This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Welcome to For the Love Podcast with best-selling author Jen Hatmaker. Come on in and join us for a chat with Jen and friends about all the things we love. Now, here's Jen. Hey guys, it's Jen Hatmaker. Welcome to the For the Love podcast. And we've interviewed amazing women in every sort of space and every sort of sphere um, who have built beautiful things and overcome amazing things and started amazing things. And they just inspired me and taught me and led me. So something that we do that I have grown to love more than anything on earth is that for each series on the podcast, we crowdsource the final episode. So yes, we have all these amazing experts that we're going to bring in and leaders um, and authors. But right here in our own tribe together, we have the most amazing women. Um, our sto- The stories that we just share here collectively are phenomenal. So when it came to this series on Moxie, I came to you and said, who's got it? 
who's got moxie and over and over and over you told us Anna LeBaron and Ruth Warner and they are both on today. Let me tell you real quickly about them before we jump into our fascinating conversation. So Anna LeBaron is the author of a book called The Polygamist's Daughter. So go ahead and get excited about this fascinating story because it's like nothing you've ever heard. It's this very, very haunting memoir of her life um, as the daughter of a notorious polygamist and murderer, Ervil LeBaron. So she tells the story of her childhood and escape from this violent cult. And so now Anna is a speaker and a life coach, and she is doing beautiful, holy, healing work in the world. She's a mom to five grown kids, and she lives in the Dallas-Fort um, Worth area. So we've got Anna, and with her, we have Ruth Warner. So Ruth, first of all, let me tell you this. She's an internationally renowned speaker and author. So her book was a New York Times bestseller, and it's called The Sound of Gravel. So Ruth was also the daughter of a polygamist, um, and it was called Colonia LeBaron. She's going to tell us about it. And at the age of 15, she escaped um, the colony and moved to California and raised her three younger sisters, um, earned a GED, put herself through college and grad school, um, and then ultimately went on to write a New York Times bestselling book. Here's what's crazy. Anna and Ruth are cousins but they did not meet until last year. They both wrote books about their stories. Anna accidentally got connected to Ruth. And as it turns out, their fathers were brothers. And one brother had the other brother killed. It's just too much. I've already said too much. We're going to talk about all this on the podcast. But now both of these amazing women are on the podcast today telling their stories and telling specifically how they rose up out of these ashes of abuse and evil into extraordinary, courageous women who are doing such good in the world. You're going to love this one, you guys. This is heartbreaking, encouraging, fascinating, shocking. It's all in here. So thank you for telling us to have Anna and Ruth on because this is going to be an amazing episode. So thanks for joining us. And without any further ado, on to our chat. Anna and Ruth, I'm tickled. I'm so tickled. Welcome to the show. I'm just so, I'm honored. I'm excited to have you both on here. So um, I know you already know this, but we're pretty um we're pretty jazz fingers about having you on this series. This, this whole series is for the love of Moxie. And as you very well know, uh, we crowdsource one episode in every series. And so basically the question goes out to the tribe. Guys, we want to know who you think has amazing Moxie. Who should we invite out of our own space together online to tell their story. And you guys, um, your, your names like overwhelmingly came up over and over and over again. And I already knew both of your stories on and I have been friends now for years, obviously. And I had read the sound of gravel. I've read both of your books. And so when your names came up, I thought 100% yes. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. It okay, is. so that's Anna, listeners. Anna, say hi, I'm Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. And this is Ruth. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's such so exciting. I'm thrilled to be here. 
Oh, same, same, same. Um, so we're going to get into to your stories and, and the, some of the details of it and how you overcame. But um, just for our listeners who haven't um, met you yet or your stories are new to them, would each of you um, tell us just sort of a 35,000-foot view of your story, your childhood, and why we have you on this show today? You want to start, Anna? Oh, I sure can. Um, my life started in a, a polygamist cult where I was born and raised. My father was known by the news media outlets that would report on the atrocities that he committed or had his followers commit. He was known as the, quote, Mormon Manson. He was responsible for the deaths of 28 people confirmed, and it, those were committed by his followers. So I was born into this. I was three years old when the first hit was committed or, um, or uh, carried out. And so I lived, I grew up and lived my life in fear. We moved around a lot because my father was wanted by the law. And so I didn't have any type of um, root system in place. Mm. And I was able to escape when I was 13 years old. And, you know, life went on, but the tragedies uh, continued in spite of just having gotten out. Mm. So that's kind of the, the overall picture as a grown adult i i you know went to professional counseling and found um, freedom found um, a way to overcome the obstacles that were in my way yeah and was able to put into words that meant something for my healing journey Mm. that the things Um, that happened so Obviously, your stories intersect. So, Ruth, will you sort of give your version and your side of things, and then we'll talk in a few minutes about how your stories have dovetailed? Yes, absolutely. I grew up in Colonial LeBaron, and it was or is still a colony in Chihuahua, Mexico, that my paternal grandfather started in order to practice polygamy. And my father, Joliffe LeBaron, became the prophet of that community and started the church and uh, ended up having nine wives and 42 children and I'm his 39th. But in 1972, when I was born, I was three months old when there was a fight in the church and he was killed. And my story is about growing up in the shadow of his um, divinity or his calling as told to me by his followers and by my mother and my mother was 17 when she married my father he was 42 um and her family once he was killed she was only 25 when he was killed um and it's the story of my life without him and growing up with my mom ultimately it's a mother-daughter story it's a family story it's a story of survival and sibling relationships and how we learn to survive and become more and more resilient by depending on each other um And my mom, her family left the church, but she stayed and ended up marrying, ended up becoming the second wife to another polygamous man, Mm -hmm. a devout follower of my biological father's. And she had six more children with him and he was very abusive and just a devastating childhood. Um, And it's, it's that story of my life and what that was like for me as a child 
growing up in that kind of situation and watching my mother and her choices and being broken hearted by those too. Mm. Um, I told you both earlier that when I read your stories, both of your books, it, it is so, it feels like reading fiction. It feels like there's no way that this could be your life. There's no way that this was how, um, this group lived and how you suffered and how you survived. It is fast. It's just so it's fascinating. It's sad. It's shocking. Um, it's really interesting because, um, we know that both of you sort of, I mean, really, I don't think this is a dramatic word. You escaped out of these cults, um, you know, separate factions of a cult run by your fathers who were brothers. Um, they were brothers and, but you guys did not know each other as children. Can you tell everybody how, how did you end up meeting as grownups who have sort of, um, been delivered? Well, I probably should answer that since I was the one who reached out to Ruth, not knowing she was my cousin. I reached out to her on Twitter Wow. When I saw that there was a book coming out called The Sound of Gravel, and it was a memoir, and I love reading memoir. So I reached out to her, and you won't be surprised, Jen, to know that I asked if she already had a launch team in place. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> I wanted to be on the launch team of this yes. book because I wanted to get my hands on it and read it. I didn't know it was about polygamy. I didn't know anything. I just knew it was Are a you memoir. serious? I am totally serious. So, so it was just something about it was intriguing enough to reach out to Ruth? Her publicist that I follow on Twitter had posted and said, must read new memoir, January 2016. Wow. So if it says must read and it's a memoir, then I'm in. Wow. You must <laughs> so, have been shocked. I was floored. And the, the, the way I found out was a little while later, her publicist posted a Goodreads review. And so I clicked and read, and there was nothing in that review that would have alerted me that mm. Ruth was my cousin. It was one of the comments on that review that mm. said, I've read a lot of books about polygamy, and this is one of the great ones. And at that point, I went, what? Yeah. I wonder which polygamist community she came out of. And so I went to her website, started reading her history page. I'm scrolling down reading, and there I see a photo of my Uncle Joel. Crazy. And then, you know, the kind of the blood drained out of my <laughs> head, and then I kept scrolling, and then there's a photo of my dad's mugshot. Mm. And I, at that point, um, went kind of crazy in my head because yeah. um, it was my father that ordered the hit on Ruth's father. You guys. Ruth was three years old. I was three no old. three yeah. months old. Mm -hmm. I was three years old when that hit was carried out. And so there's been, that was in 1972. So there has been a 40 year separation between Joel his family and followers, and Ervil, my father, and his family and followers. The Ervilites, as we were referred to, um, were not allowed to communicate with Joel's children. We weren't allowed to talk to each other or have anything to do with each other. And that just became the way it was. So when I and realized... geographically, where were you? Um, at the time? 
Uh-huh. I probably lived in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, in Ensenada is my guess, because I was three years old. I, I don't know for a fact, <laughs> and my mother can't remember a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I realized that I had tweeted her publicly. <laughs> and so mm. I went, oh my gosh, what have I done? Wow. And then I knew it to, to delete it, if she had already seen it, would just make everything more awkward. Sure. And so I tweeted her again and said, I just now realized that we're related. You know, I escaped my father's cult when I was 13 just to distance myself from the atrocities that my father had committed. And then I private messaged her and began a conversation and said, I did not intend to bring up, you know, old hurts and old pain. And I'll delete those tweets if you want me to. And what was your thought here, Ruth? I mean, this could, this had to have been unexpected for you. It was uh, totally unexpected. Um, I never, even growing up, uh, we always knew that my dad was Ervil's first victim. And I didn't consider at all that Ervil's kids were alive and well. And, and you know, I had all these cousins that uh, had also escaped and lived productive lives. So when I saw the tweet, I was actually in New York City recording my audiobook and doing hmm. some media work with my publicist. And I saw the tweet and it said Anna LeBaron. So I knew that um, I knew that she was my relative and I immediately reached out to our aunt Irene Spencer and asked her about Anna and if she was a nice person and what she was like. And then and I just didn't have time to tweet her back that day. And I definitely did not want to have the conversation publicly either. Um, And once I heard from my aunt that she was a nice person and that she was uh, very positive and doing a lot of good things with her life, um, I responded and we corresponded. And as soon as she told me that she also escaped um, when she was a teenager, too, I was 15 and she was 13. Right. um, Then I knew, you know, I just thought about it and I'm like, you know what? She's probably just like me. Yeah. So, um, and she was afraid that I didn't want to talk to her, but I was like, you know, I knew that, um, I, I was totally open to getting to know her and we set up a phone call and I sent her my book right away. Cause I really wanted her to love the story and yeah. get behind the story before she started to promote it. That was really important to me. And so I sent her the book. I live in Portland, Oregon. She's in Dallas, Texas. And we set up a phone call probably about a week and a half after the initial tweet Mm -hmm. and sat down, had a conversation and we're just blown away by the similarities. And not only that, as I was on the phone with Anna, I found out actually that she has sisters. So I have cousins that live here in Portland, Oregon. They're my neighbors. It's just incredible. So I was over the top excited because when I escaped my LeBaron family and the situation that I was in at 15, I you know, I lost a lot of my LeBaron family relationships and my yeah. sisters and half sisters. And that's been, a, you know, a void in my life. And I was just super excited to meet these LeBaron cousin, cousins who, um, you know, are on similar but different paths. It was uh, just mm. heartwarming and so exciting. I want to talk about um, both of your path out in a minute, but I'm curious. You've obviously connected now and read each other's um, books and um, I, that must have been fascinating to read the, each other's stories 
so similar and yet different. Can you tell us a little bit about what you read in one another's stories that was the same and what was different? Like what, what rang really familiar in the way that you were raised and the way that your, your fathers sort of led their, their um, communities? A lot of the similarities were the abuses that were taking place, the deprivation, the moving around, the rootlessness, and um, not having a voice, not having a choice. Definitely being the groomed, way. Yeah, being groomed yeah. to become a sister wife eventually. Obviously. Yeah. For me, it was surprising, too, to see the similarities and to realize that even though these two people splintered off violently and ended up carrying on different churches. My, my father was past, had, had, was dead by then, but um, his community is actually still thriving and they still believe he's the prophet. And so I grew up with that belief system. And it was surprising that, that in, despite the fact that they broke apart, there were so many similarities about the way women and children are uh, treated, the neglect, yes. and also that mentality of poverty and that secret, like, don't, you can't talk about, you know, the fact that we're the chosen ones and we have the right way. And there was so much of that rhetoric in both of the churches. Um, and in spite of the differences, that mentality stayed in both the families. Hmm. I, I can't imagine how both alarming and comforting it must have been to essentially read the mirror version of your own childhood um, in one another's stories. It's really, um, it is extraordinary how much courage you both had to demonstrate to escape from, from your situations at such young ages. And uh, somehow there was something in both of you um, that resisted this this inevitability of becoming a wife to another polygamist and continue the cycle of just devastation and poverty and neglect and abuse for yet another generation. I think, um, Ruth, I was reading about how strong the hold is that the polygamous head of the family has over the group. Um, you know, it's just such emotional abuse and spiritual abuse. And essentially, you know, as you wrote about your own your own mother, was brainwashed. So at what point did both of you, and I'd like to hear you both speak into this, what was it? Was there a moment or was it just a growing dawning? When was it that you both understood that this was not a fate you were willing to accept? For me, it was definitely progressive. It was something that I started to see in my early childhood my maternal grandparents lived in the United States and I spent some time living with them and going to schools. And I had been taught that the Americans were Babylonians, that they were sinful. And I went to the first grade in central California and I ended up, you know, in my mind, I thought that all Americans were mean and, and awful, but I walked into my first grade classroom and it was literally like, I loved my teacher right away. The people were really nice. And so I was confused. I was confused about what was really true, even at six years old. And we ended up moving back to Mexico and back to a life with no electricity and, you know, an outhouse for a bathroom. And, you know, the creature comforts that I had in California were hard to let go of and go back to a harsh, harsher lifestyle. 
So that's when it started. And then I started to see my mom really suffer. You know, she was pregnant every year and a half. My stepfather didn't come around. And then on top of that, he was not only physically abusive towards her, but when I was eight, he started to sexually assault me. And initially, I thought it was just me. I, I, I didn't understand what was going on. Um, you know, I hadn't been told a lot about that part of life. I mean, I was a kid. And it wouldn't be long, really, within the year, I think, of uh, the initial abuse was I, I ended up finding out that he was abusing other little girls, other stepchildren of his. And it was the hypocrisy behind that and then going to the adults and letting them know what was going on, but never have any consequences for my stepfather for his behavior and what he'd done. Mm. That really, I think, really for me was like, yeah, this is there's this is not right. There is something not right about this situation. And it, you know, I told my mom, it still went on. I told my mom again, and I told other people in the colony again, and she stayed, you know, and that's something that was an incredibly heartbreaking thing for me. And when the absolute breaking point was my stepfather had built the home that we lived in and he had hooked up the electricity and he wasn't an electrician. He did an awful job. And the neglect and the abuse that had been going on for so many years in our lives turned into tragedy. And my youngest brother, five-year-old Micah, and my mom were killed in an accident with the electricity on our property. And my youngest sister was five months old. She was still nursing. I had a two-year-old sister that I was potty training and my sister Elena was four. We lost our brother, and then I had a 10-year-old brother and a 17-year-old special needs brother mm-hmm. and an older brother. And, you know, our family was huge. I could go on right. and on. But it was, I found out not long after my mom died, not only was he trying to take my four-year-old sister and be alone with her, and I was mm-hmm. just like, you're not taking those little girls anywhere without me. Because all of though, you know, my my culture, my community told me to forgive him, but I was like, yeah, you know, I'm stuck here, but you're not taking those little girls. There was no way. And he was becoming relentless. It was getting more like, you know, I I was 15. I didn't really have any power in that community. I didn't have a say. And one day he had been working with my my special needs brother and he came home and he was acting a little bit uncomfortable. And my brother has a lot of trouble with communication. He was 17, but on the mentality, Uh, emotional level of a five, you know, five or six year old, probably. He sat down and started to talk about his time with my stepfather. And I was shocked because I didn't know that, you know, I had, I I hadn't even considered that my stepfather might hurt him. Yes. And I was sitting across the table from my brother and he started to talk about being assaulted. And I was like, yeah, I was, I was that split second, you know, and once my mom was gone, she was really the center of our universe because my stepdad wasn't around. And that's true in a lot of these polygamous communities that the mom is everything. And so we were completely, you know, obviously trying to find a way I was taking care of my sisters and my brother. And it was just this mother bear primal instinct that exploded inside of me in rage and anger and 
I was just like, we are out of here. There is no way I'm staying. Called my brother uh, in San Diego. He came down and we crossed the border. We left LeBaron, Colonial LeBaron in the middle of the night. I packed all their things. We didn't even have legal paperwork to bring my sisters across the border. I mean, it was terrifying. Left that town slowly in the middle of the night. Um, and fortunately, we're all blonde hair, blue eyed. So the you know authorities let us cross into the board across the border, and we lived with my grandmother for the first four years. But at that point, there was no I wasn't going back. You know, it it was literally like I had lost. My mother was the one who kept me there, and her beliefs. And as you said, the brainwashing and her sense of as I wrote about her in my book, I really realized that she lost that core sense of herself in a way that I had because I was so much younger and didn't have a bunch of kids and wasn't yet brainwashed, I guess you might say. Um, you know, it, it, that, that part of me, I hadn't lost that part of myself. And so that was um, something that was hard to realize. But because she wasn't there, there was nothing to bring me back anymore. And, you know, I started to find a new way when I started raising my sisters. It was I wanted a better life for us. When I think about you doing that at 15, I just want to cry my eyes out. I it's just, so heartbreaking. I, I just, my heart is just broken that, first of all, you had to grow up like that. Second of all, you had to mother everybody, including your older brother. And the risk that it took and the courage that it took, it's just unbelievable. Worth. I, I, I've got a 15-year-old. Yeah. I can't even, my, my brain will not compute this, um, that you had to make these sorts of risky adult sort of decisions for so many people at such a young age, having already suffered your own abuse. And you did it. You walked out the door in the middle of the night and never looked back. It's amazing. How about you, Anna? Well, my story is a little bit different. Um, my father was in prison when, after the authorities finally caught up with him in 1979. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. So my father was controlling the group from prison, while, and we lived in Denver. So his right-hand man in Denver was using all my father's wives and children that were located in Denver as slave labor. There's no other way to talk about it. We were working 12 hour days all summer long, six days a week. And I'm probably nine, not 10 years old at the time. So how much work can you really get out of a 10 year old? Let me tell you, when you're threatened with a beating and yeah. I'm watching my siblings get beat violently with dryer cords because we worked in an appliance shop it was like a sweatshop and I'm watching people get beat. And I was a compliant child and, and figured out really fast to do what I was told and do it well so that I wouldn't be beat. And so we were living under those circumstances in Denver when at some point, and I don't know all the narrative among the adults, but my older brother was living and working in Houston at another branch of our cult in Houston. And so he came and moved my mother and her children to Houston and we began life there. 
And the man that was in charge of the Houston faction was a lot more um, kind about the way he ran his appliance business. So we were actually paid for our work. We all had to work. There was no getting around that. The used appliance business was how our, our family brought in income that helped pay for things. But we were um, in Denver. We were, you know, dumpster diving for food, dumpster diving in the Goodwill boxes for clothes. In Houston, my mom was actually paid for her work. She could shop for groceries in the grocery store. And the money that we earned, we could keep. And I remember, you know, buying myself my first pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans with the money that I had earned, you know, $5 a week. (laughs) And so it was during that period of time that my father um, passed away in jail. So I'm 12 years old at that time. Um, The man in Denver wanted control of the different factions that were in different cities in the U.S. And so he convinced my mother to move her family back to Denver. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what transpired, um, how I knew, but I knew my mother was going to go back to Denver. So I Mm -hmm. called a half-sister and let her know that I was not interested in going back to Denver and and she said to me, start walking. Wow. So and you're 12. I'm, I'm 13 now. You're 13 I had now. my 13th Gosh. birthday right after my dad passed away. Mm-hmm. So I'm 13 now. And so I made sure I was wearing my Gloria Vanderbilt jeans that I had worked mm-hmm. really hard for. Of course. And just walked out of my home. I knew, the way, the, I knew the way to my sister's house. And, and I... I didn't know the plan. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew that on the route between our house and hers, um, other family members would be driving as they came home from work or back and forth. And I knew that if anybody saw me, that I would be dragged back. And so my sister found me, picked me up. And the first night, she took me to another sister's house. And I spent the night there. About midnight, I'm woken up. I'm told to crawl through the window and go through the back fence and wait there until they come and get me. And it was my mother at the door looking for me. Wow. So she looked for me that night, didn't find me, and then packed up all my siblings and moved back to Denver without me. And Having so, never made contact with you or spoken to you. Correct. Wow. And I was just grateful that she left without me. Hmm. (laughs) um, My sister picked me up the next day and put me in a hotel for three days to hide me Hmm. um, in that just not knowing if they were going to come back or, you know, if they had left yet. So we waited. And then eventually when we realized they were, they were gone, we went back to the house that had my belongings and moved them. But then my mom did come back looking for me. She did. About a month or so later, I'm home alone, and I see my own mother coming around the corner through the window. And I literally went weak with fear. I bet. Because I was alone. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know how I managed to dial the phone. I called my sister because she was at the, the other shop and said, my mom is here. And she says, don't open the door. Uh, Mark and I will be right there. And um, it seemed like an eternity, but they showed up. And um, what I didn't know at the time was that prior to my mom coming to pick me up, um, she had tried to get another one of my sisters that also run away. Mm. She tried to take her by force. Wow. And my other sister fought her off, um, didn't wow. let her get picked up. And so I think at that point, my mom just said, well, I'll try to talk her into doing this. Let's see. And I sat there at the table that night and she was trying to convince me to go to Denver. And I just kept saying, I want to stay here. I want to stay in Houston. I like my life here. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm not sure how I was able to have the emotional fortitude to, to just stand up for myself and, mm -hmm. and speak what I wanted, but I managed to, and I'm utterly grateful to this day. Mm. Something in your young hearts, the both of you, um, rose up like fierce and strong, even after a whole childhood of subjugation and abuse and trauma. It's just, it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful and it's inspiring. Hey guys, this is Jen. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. I wanted to break in real quick and tell you about a special offer from audible.com for you, the listeners of the For the Love podcast. So Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service, which is amazing. If you don't already use Audible, you will love it. So you can get a free audiobook just for trying it out. And maybe you might want to check out the audio version of my book, For the Love, or one of many other titles available on audible.com by yours truly. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash hatmaker. Super easy. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash hatmaker for your free audiobook. Both of you, this is this is interesting because um you're both mothers and I mean, obviously you can't even imagine your own children, right? Living in these conditions, enduring these sort of, um, abuses and losses. It just seems so, I mean, otherworldly for your own. So, um, I I'm curious, and, and obviously your mothers had different paths and different stories, but can you talk just a little bit? Cause you know, a lot of people listening, obviously, did not grow up in a polygamous cult like you two did, but a lot of people listening did grow up in abusive homes. Um, or they grew up, uh, with a lot of loss where, um, maybe in one, in one case or another, they felt like their mother was either complicit or did not protect them, um, or refused to leave or to say no, or to stand up or to stand between the children and a abusive dad or stepdad or whatever the case may be. Um, so can you talk just for a minute about just how you've 
or if you have, I'm, I will not project this onto your story. How have you dealt with your feelings toward your mothers? Have you made peace here? Have you, um, what are your emotions towards your mothers now that you're grown adults? Well, for me, oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead Anna. You go, no, no, you go ahead, Anna. <laughs> okay. So my mother is still alive. She is 86 years old and still believes in the practice of plural marriage or polygamy and lives in a community not uh, there's nobody that believes in my father anymore just so we can Mm -hmm. set the record straight but there are other polygamist communities all across the southwest up into canada and down to mexico there are a lot of them and my mother is is has joined another one and and lives there with them and so i have had to find a way to have as good of a relationship as I can with her um, in spite of our very different faith practices and faith beliefs. She, um, she and I have basically agreed to disagree. Um, she is part of a community that allows contact with outsiders. Not all of them do. Right. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. There's, um, I know my mom was very concerned when she heard that I was, you know, going to write a book and tell my story. So I assured her that there was nothing in me that wanted to dishonor her in the telling Mm -hmm. of my story. And so I was very intentional about telling my story and not projecting on her or trying to think what her thoughts were at the time. And so I was very intentional in the way that I wrote the book. And I let her know that when I was done and I turned the manuscript into the publisher, that I would come and and read it to her. And so I did. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I um, turned in the manuscript, booked my flight, and went and spent a week with her. And I knew that she did not know a lot of the things that happened to me as a child Mm. because she wasn't there a lot as I was growing up and I ran away for when I was 13. And so she wasn't there for the rest of my life. And so I knew that there was so much that had happened to me that her choices and decisions, you know, had um, brought upon me. And so the last thing that I wanted was for her to get the book on her doorstep and sit alone and read alone. So I went and, read her the manuscript out loud over the course of two days. And we cried a lot. I knew that she had so much grief uh, locked up inside of her about our childhoods that she had never been able to express. So we sat together and cried and talked Mm -hmm. about some really difficult things that I had experienced. And I went there with my expectations firmly rooted in reality, knowing that this wasn't going to change her mind about her beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I was correct. She doesn't believe anymore that my father, Ervil LeBaron, was the the prophet at all, ever. But she does believe that the the man that she um, eventually married, you know, a spiritual marriage— um, not legal. Um, it was the prophet. And so 
I knew these things and I, and I went there not intending to change her mind. I went there intending to be the hands and feet of Jesus to her yeah. in her grief, mm. to be physically present with her, to comfort her heart because knowing that she, that the, her choices brought this on me wow! and I wanted to comfort her no matter That's really what. Powerful, Anna. Oh man. How about you, Ruth? Yeah. You know, um, I'm so inspired by Anna's story, this part of it. And there's a part of me that is so envious of it because I didn't yeah. get to have that closure with my mother. Right. And that has been probably the most heartbreaking thing of my life. Mm. Um, because when I was, you know, my, again, like, like I said earlier, we, my mom was really the center of our universe and she was, um, the kind of mom that made everything fun in spite of not having money. She went to yard sales and always wrapped up little trinkets and made sure we had stockings on Christmas. She was raised in a LDS Mormon and a Southern Baptist Christian family. And uh, she brought that blended faith with her in spite of her beliefs in fundamentalism. And so she always made life fun. And I talk to my half-siblings now that knew her and loved her and, and her sweet and kind spirit. And I just spoke with one of my half brothers from LeBaron last week. And he said, you know, when I die and go to heaven, I want your mom to be my mom. Mm. And that's, that's a nice thing to say. Was, you know, and it's so sweet. And as I wrote about my mom, I realized that, you know, she lost that sense of herself. And she honestly, at the core of herself, she didn't believe that she deserved better and mm -hmm. she made choices and even chose reli religions and men or a religion and men mm -hmm. husbands that validated the way she felt about herself and that was heartbreaking me you know for me to realize and with my situation i look at my mom and her choices and they devastated me as a kid when she decided to stay especially with my stepfather um yeah. It was, it was devastating. It's almost therapeutic, right? To kind of write through it. And it, it, I know sometimes for me, the process of writing can literally take me by the hand and walk me through um, forgiveness Absolutely. or acceptance or understanding. Um, and so I can imagine that that could have borne out in your own heart and soul as you wrote your story about your mom. Absolutely, it did. And it helped me realize too that, you know, she paid the price for her choices and my little brother paid the price and there's not, there's no reason for me to be angry anymore. Mm. And it, yeah. And I also raising her three children, it's kind of ironic because she always raised me to be a good wife and a good mom. And, and, you know, my domestic education was always a priority to her and that being a priority. So it's kind of mm. ironic that after she passed that I ended up raising her three kids Right, And it's amazing what we learn about ourselves through our parenting. <laughs> and oh, I, that's preach. <laughs> <laughs> and as I was raising them, especially as they were teenagers, it was like, <laughs> you know, I was honestly, yeah. my forgiveness pro has been a, a process, a long process. And yeah. I honestly, like thinking about my mom, the more I got to know myself and my own imperfections and I, my own sure. ways of being, I, um, I really realized, you know, that we're all imperfect. We're all in this, this together. And it was like, um, 
you know, it was that that part of it helped me learn to forgive mm. too. Just realizing my own mistakes and my own humanity and and what, so many things that I had to learn about myself. I, I really so that, that is that is so relatable. Um, let me ask you to this. So, I mean, your your trauma was born out of the confines of a radical cult. I mean, this is this is quite a story, you guys. So this is. I can only imagine how many heinous and evil things were said and done um, in the name of religion, right? In the name of God, right? In the name of God sent me, God told me, God put this honor upon me. I'm wondering if you can talk for a minute about how did you, or did you at all, um, make your peace with God? I mean, how did you... Were you able to embrace a new, a different kind of community of believers um, in, in a healthy way or in a, in a way that felt true and, and honoring and dignified? Anna? Um, well, for me, one of the things that happened was, and it's a long story, I, <clears throat> I was enrolled in a Christian school by my sister and brother-in-law that took me in. Um, I knew that... Um, well, I know now that probably the teachers there were given a little bit of background about my circumstances and my family of origin. And so the love and the acceptance, the grace that was demonstrated towards me, um, it was different than anything I had ever experienced in my life. Yeah. And so I, I was very... Um, it was profoundly moving as a teenage girl to experience this whole different life, a whole different way of interacting with God. And I remember the day vividly that one of the teachers began her prayer at the beginning of the day. And instead of saying the very um, traditional and you know, wrote, Dear Heavenly yeah. Father, that I had grown up with um, my whole life. She used the word Father mm. when she prayed. And my ears perked up. And in my mm. spirit, I knew she had something that I didn't. Wow. And that became a quest for, I didn't like make a, you know, conscious decision at the time. But I know that from that moment on, my heart longed for what she had. Mm. And so I became very, um, just very studious. And it was not long after that, that our church youth group went to camp. And I'm sure anybody that's been to church camp knows that every night you go and sit in a service and sing and hear, have to hear a message, you know? <laughs> yes, I do. I know it well, sister. <laughs> so, um, so I was very uh, ripe for receiving Christ at that youth camp when that invitation was made. And so that was my experience, um, Matt, you know, making that leap from where I was, what I was born into, to what I now experience. Now, the father piece, um, that took me decades to untangle. Not having grown up with a father, and basically fatherless, even though I knew who my dad was, we were fatherless. Yeah. I only spent time yes. with him 
in the same room twice that I remember. Oh, was that right? Wow. So, so I grew up essentially fatherless. So making that leap from my experience with my earthly father that had no bearing on whatsoever on the way that our heavenly father um, wants to connect with us. So that took me decades to unravel and unpack. And it's only been in the last five years or so that that has become that thing that I wanted and longed for as a 13 year old. Now, um, you know, I'm a 48 year old. Here I am, you know, now um, ha- experiencing that um, fatherly affection from my heavenly father and basking in it. Mm beautiful. Mm -hmm. How about you, Ruth? Yeah. You know, I, even in my early childhood, I was angry at God. And I remember I was always a prayerful child and I'm an introvert. And so I always would reflect on things and go to prayer in my heart, um, really daily throughout the day, um, in the middle of the day. And I remember as a, probably an eight year old, I was so angry with my mom and my stepdad that I hid behind a bunch of clothes in the closet in this musty smelling closet. And I just stuck my tongue out at God. I was so angry with him. Like, Mm -hmm. why are you doing to the, you know, this to me, I've been praying my whole life for a better life. And, um, you know, so that childish part of myself, even back then felt betrayed by God. Sure. And I, you know, and especially when my mom died after I prayed for her to live, it was, I felt at the time, and not even cognitively, I didn't realize I was feeling this way, but I realize it now that I felt again betrayed by God. And I have dealt with that, and part of my therapy has really been being honest with myself about those true feelings. And it's kind of ironic because when I was raising my sister, sisters without a lot of money to pay the bills and putting myself through college and you know they all played basketball they all did these things and I would be driving to one practice to another to Girl Scouts booster club etc etc just praying like God get me through this mm-hmm. and so it's so interesting because there was always that irony of me asking God for help but then never trusting that he was going to be there for me right and that's something that I had to, you know, I had to be honest with myself about. And so I took my little sisters to churches and different places. The LDS Mormon church hasn't really uh, appealed to me just because of my childhood, I'm sure. And I know a lot of nice Mormon people and they're wonderful people. But for me, philosophically, it wasn't something that touched me. And I, um, you know, I always wanted to find that sense of community and, and, and look for it. And for me, it ended up becoming more of a personal journey. So I still have that prayerful side of me, but there's a part of me that doesn't want somebody else to tell me, you know, God wants what's best for me or that they know better for my, for me than I know for myself. And I feel more and more as I meditate and, and my prayer and my journaling, I feel that connection within myself. And I feel like it's that intuitive part of myself, that part of God's communication within me that gave me that strength and that told me loud and clear, like you need to run. And Mm -hmm. it's that part of me that, um, that saved me. I Mm -hmm. I believe that that is where there, where God is, where he is Mm -hmm. now. And, um, so that's really, you know, it's interesting how my suffering has helped 
bring that out in myself and has helped that grown within me. And, you know, our suffering has, it's been a, a huge teacher for me. And, and I, I believe that that's, yeah. you know, that is where God lives. That quiet, um, still voice when, when I am able to push aside the chaos and the noise and the fear, um, that, that still quiet, just voice of the Holy Spirit in my soul mm -hmm. has led me better than any other tool in my mm -hmm. life. Totally so agree. Everything you're saying is just resonating with me down to my toes. So, um, you mentioned, um, sort of your recovery a little bit. Can you talk for just, can you just briefly talk about what your path to recovery was? What were some of the tools that you reached for? I, you know, you're in this series, um, for the love of Moxie and, and I, I, I just wrote a book on them. You've heard of it. I've heard of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and in it, in, in one of the essays, I basically, I'm trying to bully women into a counselor's <laughs> office if they need it. I believe in it so much. I just, I think that there, it's not weak at all. It's this strength mm -hmm. to labor toward your own health. And so can you just both, I would love for our listeners to know these are the things that you reached for um, as you worked actively to, to find healing for your minds, for your souls, for your spirits. It definitely for me began with prayer. Mm. And it began with my asking and being patient for answers. And that's definitely been a huge part of my healing process. And that led me to other things. Um, I started taking world religions in college when I uh, when I went back at 21, when my sisters were little, and I uh, was just fascinated by this idea that I had a choice about how I wanted to believe. And I'm so lightened up and inspired by that. And it was a new thought to me because I had always been taught, oh, you know, there's one way and this is what it is. And if you're not in that particular, you don't follow those specific rules, then God doesn't love you. Um, mm. and so that was an exciting part of the growth too. And um, again, my relationships with my sisters too, having a purpose outside myself, I have to say is really what saved me through my toughest years and my grief, having them to care about having, you know, having something else, um, that mattered in my life and that was incredibly important to me and my relationships with them are still very strong and they've helped me even now they're therapeutic for me and then going to therapy and it took me a long time i gosh it was 15 years after my mom died when i started teaching high school and i got benefits and there's a lot of freedom and benefits and i got to go see a counselor for an hour for $20 copay. It was awesome. Wow, amazing. I know. It was there was tremendous freedom in, you know, having an income, having benefits, and I took a little while for me to find the right person because I needed somebody to be honest with me and to really help me. I needed I needed more than just to talk about myself. I needed somebody to say, "Hey, this is what happens in grief. This is what happened to, happens in uh, adult survivors of sexual assault." Um, those kinds of things. I, I needed some of those things. And I, I chose a person who I love and adore, and I still go to therapy, but she called me on my choices, you know, because I had to be wow. honest with myself about the choices I was making that were keeping me single, basically. Hmm. Um, the choices I was making with my family. And, you know, even after all my education and getting a professional career and having a professional career, I looked at my life 
And I looked around and I realized that I was still living my conditioning. I was 33, 34 years old with teenagers in my house, broke and alone, just like my mother. Wow. And so having those kinds of insights about myself and those truths about myself and the choices that I was making. And by that, I mean also the good choices, you know, um, to be able to, um, yeah, I think we have to know where we're where we are in order to grow and heal. Um, powerful, powerful, powerful. I just took notes. Um, how about you, Anna? My counseling journey began in 1995. I was married and had a few children of my own by that time. And I had attended a family wedding where um, there were people from my past that attended as well, which triggered a really horrific nightmare that, that night after the wedding. So I fell asleep and dreamed that a brown van pulled up to my home and my family members got out with guns and came in and shot me. And these were triggers of old memories of experiencing these kinds of things growing up. And so the very next day, um, after having thought I'd put my whole past behind me, which I hadn't, um, the very next day, I had a play date with a friend. With my our, our kids had a play date, and I I very you know tenuously and um, cautiously told my friend about my nightmare just because it was troubling me so much. Mm-hmm. And I had made it a point not to tell very many people about my past and my family of origin just because it was so shameful to me what mm-hmm. where I came from. And so this friend um, says to me, if I make you an appointment with the lay ministry counselor at my church, will you go? Wow. And I Mm. said, sure. I I didn't know I needed help. (laughs) And then Mm. she followed that up and said, "Um, do I need to watch your boys for you while you're at the appointment? Or do you need me to drive you? Mm. And and I said, yes. I went and for an hour, um, un. Uh, like just unbared my bared my soul to this lady and she very wisely handed me a business card to a woman who was part of the Samaritan pastoral counseling ministry and um, because God so divinely orchestrates our lives um, this Mm -hmm. woman that she referred me to had done her thesis on cults and so I began five years of therapy with her name is Joy so, um, so poignant and, um, (laughs) so I began that process and I remember the first day she asked me, tell me about your relationship with your dad Mm. and how do you wrap that up in a nice, like lady, you want to start there? (laughs) How long do you have? Uh, But really my answer to her at that time was he was never around and we dealt with it. Yeah. And I didn't have any other context with which to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And it took me five years of um, consistently attending therapy. And she practiced on a sliding scale. So I was paying $35 a visit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my children's father was in the military. So, you know, you mm-hmm. know about military income. <laughs> so yeah. so we, we qualified for the, you know, lower rates that she was charging And so five years into it, I finally completed what she called 
peeling back the layers of an onion. Hmm. I, I arrived in her office not really having the full expression of my emotions um, for me to grab a hold of and use in life. Um, when you're born in and raised in a cult like ours, you have a very limited range of emotions that are safe. Mm -hmm. And so um, I know you just interviewed Brene Brown. <laughs> and um, I learned, you know, she says you cannot selectively numb your emotions. If you numb mm -hmm. the negative ones, you're also yeah. numbing the positive mm -hmm. ones. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I walked into that office with such a limited range of emotion. And at the wow. end of five years of of her just tenderly and sweetly and carefully helping me unpack my childhood, mm -hmm. um, what when I got to the core of that onion, what I found was a little girl that just mm -hmm. wanted the love of her father. Of course. And I sobbed in counseling for weeks and months. It felt like years <laughs> eventually. And... You know, that was the beginning of the process. Yes. I am still in counseling. Um, the counselor that I see now specializes in post-traumatic stress. Mm, yes, exactly. And I did not know that's what it was called <laughs> until very recently in 2000, uh, 2015, yeah. 16, you know. When, no, 2014 is when I found out that what I was experiencing is called anxiety that's triggered by post-traumatic stress. I mean, almost textbook. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so for me, the healing journey has been a very long one. And mm -hmm. I have pressed in and sought healing and, and done all of my part to, yes. to grow and to heal as much as is humanly possible on this side of heaven. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Can you tell everybody, you guys, as we sort of wrap it up here, um, you've both done amazing work. You've shown courage from the time you were little. Um, and you are the definition of overcomers. Can you tell, can you tell us a little bit about what your lives look like now? Where are you? What is your family? What are you doing? Like, um, and could you have ever imagined that this would be your story when you were little girls in a dysfunctional, abusive cult? For me, my gosh, I mean, sitting here talking to two authors uh, on a podcast, um, mm. New York Times bestselling author. No, that's not anything that ever entered my consciousness at that right. at the time. I mean, there was just no way for me. It was really, especially right after my mom died, it was all about survival. And I was on autopilot for years and just mm. trying to, you know, make things, you know, to survive. Right. Um, just get through the day, like get, get, the get day. a sandwich on the table and get through yeah, the day. That is exactly yeah. right. It is exactly right. Um, and uh, get up in the morning, put one foot in, in front of the other. Um, and then luckily, it took me a while to really start to learn to trust men because and a lot of the therapy actually helped me with that to, to find that part of myself that didn't. Um, so mm -hmm. I found an amazing husband who helped me as I was writing my book. He took walks with me. He helped support me in every way and uh, eventually became 
uh, my agent who sold my book to New York to Macmillan at that five. Ah, he did a little so double duty. He did. He did. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've been real partners all along, and he's yeah. so generous. He's the exact opposite of everything that I grew up with, and mm. uh, so he has enriched my life in so many ways. Um, and we have a lot of fun together and, and a lot of those things that I kind of missed out on in my twenties, although I didn't completely, um, you know, I get to do now and I'm celebrating life every day. My little sister, Leah, the middle of the three that I raised has a little boy, little baby Nolan, and I'm having so much fun being an auntie and being, <laughs> you know, watching the little stages of development in these little children and he you know that little boy was born with a personality and it was those kinds of things that are so simple but bring us so much joy that I didn't get to appreciate with all my younger Mm. siblings you know and it's just like I get to appreciate the little things now I get to savor them and love my family we're we're all like friends now I'm not like the mom anymore although sometimes I am (laughs) sure I'm the oldest I understand yeah yeah and they're all still really close to my three sisters especially my brother Aaron they all we all live in the Pacific Northwest and they're in touch with each other constantly and and I still love to fill their stockings <laughs> Aww. Aww. I love that, like your mom yeah. did yeah so we're doing mm. well I I'm incredibly grateful I'm so thankful and um I you know I've I've been blessed I have been incredibly mm. blessed I'm standing on my chair clapping for that how about you Anna <laughs> Well, I have, um, I live in the DFW Metroplex. I have five grown children. They all live nearby. So that makes my mama heart very happy. Um, One of the things that I'm most proud of is the fact that I was able to move here um, 12 years ago, buy my first home ever, and and raise my children in the same home um, where they've all five now graduated from the same high school. It's amazing. The fact Mm -hmm. that I was able to um, figure out how to do that is nothing short of a miracle Mm -hmm. after the family of origin that I came from. Mm -hmm. So I have um, the the 4,500, which is my tribe and my people. (laughs) And, you know, and that's been expanding just because of the work that I now do. And so that's... I couldn't have ever imagined that this would be my life where I get to do this amazing work that I'm so proud of and so passionate about. I always say that books mentored me. Mm-hmm. I entered adulthood not being able to adult. And mm-hmm. I read voraciously on every topic you can imagine that I needed to be mentored in. And so um, so now the place where I'm at today, where I get to, to do this and put books in the hands of the right people and the right audience, the right reader mm-hmm. is so powerful and, and so enriching in my life. Mm. And so that's where I'm at today. Um, it's an amazing journey that I've been on. And um, one of the ways that I have pressed in for healing and is through a um, a program at our church called Freedom Ministry, mm. where freedom is defined as becoming the person that you were created and redeemed to be. Amen. And so I have pressed in for that. And, and as I become more and more myself, mm. um, I have found that me being exactly the way God created me to be 
having full expression of that person that he designed and and that person growing up and having expression has been mm-hmm. one of the most powerful experiences of my life knowing Beautiful. that who i am is enough mm-hmm. is powerful and em- empowering mm. well let me tell you both um it's really a wonder to both read your work and hear you talk today and neither of you wear your sorrow. Um, if I didn't know your story, it would never occur to me, um, that you had suffered so much because you are both light and bright and joyful and, and resilient and beautiful. And it is a real testimony um, to who you are, who you were created to be, um, who God always wanted you to be, that you're both still standing today mm-hmm. and not just standing, thriving. I mean, I am walking away from this conversation inspired and encouraged. I mean, let me tell you guys something. We got it right when we put you in the Moxie series. Aww, You've got you, it. <laughs> You've got it. You, are, you don't know how much that really, means to me. <laughs> you wow. got it. Thank you. You. Oh, I should have put your faces on the cover. <laughs> Listen, you're living examples of what it means to not just survive, but be restored. And it's so inspirational. I want to. I want to tell you something as we wrap here, and really everybody who's listening in who does not believe um, that they can overcome whatever has harmed them, whatever has hurt them, whatever's holding them back, um, whatever's keeping them a prisoner when really freedom is their song. Um, uh, this is something that I wrote to, that I, I wrote, I said these to somebody that I loved who had been harmed and I see this in you. I wrote, I said this, your future is beautiful and purposed. You are exactly as God planned you. Jesus loves us and is with us. We are not fragile. We are overcomers and our bodies may suffer, but our spirits live. Mm. And I'm telling you, I'm emotional. Just your spirit live and I hear it and I see it and I honor it. So we're going to do one last question and it's just really quick. And it's um, a question we ask all the podcast guests and it's just simply this, and it can be as serious or as simple or as silly or as true as you want it to be. Um, but this is what Barbara Brown Taylor also says. She says, what is saving your life right now? So tell our listeners real quick as we wrap up, what is saving your lives right now? For me, it is definitely, you know, my family, my relationships with them and my prayer and the light within me that helps keep me strong and help keep me going. Um, Mm. Yeah, all the hard work was totally worth it. And I'm definitely reaping the rewards in so many ways. Bravo girls. Hey, thank you for sharing your stories today. Um, listeners, I know you want to know more. We, we really could have talked for 70 hours and not covered it all. So, um, girls, will you tell everybody, um, where can they find you? Where can they find your books? If they want to know more about your story, because both of you went into amazing detail, um, to, for what it was really like to grow up in your environments. And so, um, tell everybody where to find you. Go for it, Anna. Um, my website is AnnaLeBaron.com, and uh, almost everything you need to know about me is right there. I'm on all your social medias. Um, Anna K. LeBaron is how you would find me. I love social media. 
So (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody knows that that's on this phone call. (laughs) You make a good living out of it. It's amazing. Yes. (laughs) So connect with me and, and reach out and it's, it's been a great journey. Awesome. And Ruth? And my website is ruthwarner.com. That's my last name. My first name is Ruth and the last name is W-A-R-I-N-E-R.com. And my social media handle is at Ruth Warner. Um, and my book is called The Sound of Gravel. And um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I've worked with book clubs all over the country on Skype. And that's been a, a huge part of uh, hearing other people's stories has been just amazing. So I, I'm always honored to hear from readers and would love to hear from you. Amazing. Yeah, that's, okay, that's been fun for me as well. Definitely. Connecting with readers yes. and their stories. Oh my yeah. gosh, the best ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the best thing about being a writer, honestly. It is. Um, so, um, guys, all their books, all their links, all their websites, I'll have all that up my on my website, too. If you didn't get a pen fast enough to write it down, don't worry about it. We'll have all of that compiled for you. Um, ladies, thank you. Thank, thank you for you. joining me today. Thank you for your stories, your vulnerability, your transparency, and your courage. I mean, we are all walking away moved today. You two are the best. Thank you, Jen. It's been an honor. Thank you. Wow. I told you, uh, those girls have moxie and it was just a real honor for me to host them on this podcast. Um, and just to hold space for their stories. I'm so grateful for their bravery, honestly, um, in both just surviving and then telling their stories for the rest of us to hear. So, um, Anna's book, The Polygamous Daughter, and Ruth's book, The Sound of Gravel, all of these links will be on my website, you guys. I'll have links up to their um, respective websites too, which includes their travel schedule. Um, these are women worth meeting for sure. Also, um, I would love to see you this fall. I'm hitting the road with my girlfriend, Nicole Nordeman, who you adore. And we are on the the Moxie Matters Tour. And so you can find all of our dates. We've got eight confirmed dates and several um, in process. So keep checking back because we may add your city. Um, But all those cities are on my website under speaking. You can see where we're coming. We would love to see you. These are one night events during the week. They're super affordable. They're going to be meaningful and simple and um, nourishing and fun and wonderful. We just, we really just want to get our hands on you. So come see us this fall um, because we are really, really excited to serve you and to see you. All right, you guys, thanks for joining us week after week after week. We love having you. We love hearing from you. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for rating the podcast. It's just all been too much fun. So anyway, have a great week, you guys, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us today on the For the Love podcast. Tune in next week when we sit down again with Jen and friends to chat about all the things we love. We love you, our listeners, so we want to be sure you subscribe to For the Love with Jen Hatmaker via iTunes or your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss a thing. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review. To become a part of Jen's online community, visit jenhatmaker.com and sign up for her newsletter. It's full of all the things you love, including free stuff. We love free stuff. Thanks for listening and see you next time on For the Love with Jen Hatmaker.